0: Good morning. As as we gather here this morning, I want to um, remind you that we are continuing into this journey of this theme, Acts twenty twenty in twenty twenty. And today, I wanted to look at the at the question: What is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the church in the midst of COVID? What is the purpose? What are we called to do? Who are we called to be? And so to help along that question, I wanted to reread what I think is perhaps the most important um, thing that Jesus shared with us as a commission. Matter of fact, it's called the Great Commission. Is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are living through a time of drastic change and huge impacts, economically, socially, Um, we are dealing with um, times like we have really not seen before in our lifetime. There is confusion, there is polarization, and to be honest, many churches are not surviving. Historically, the churches survived, the church survived because it was so adaptable. The church... In this early church period in those first three centuries had to be highly adaptable in order to survive the changes that they were experiencing the impacts that were account that they were encountering through the Roman Empire and so in that early church one of the things that that they learned was that they could be the church whether it was in the temple or whether it was in the homes, going house to house. And Jesus issues a call to our purpose here at the end of Matthew 28. And within that call, I believe, are three aspirations for us as the church. This is who we are. This is what we are to be doing. The three aspirations are worship, discipleship, mission some of you may have heard me refer to this before but I received a call to be an apostle literally to be an apostle that was the call that I received when I was in 10th grade and thankfully I had grown up in the church And so I understood a sense of what an apostle was, what it meant to be an apostle. Um, The apostles were the, the 12 disciples referred to as apostles. There were many other disciples, but the 12 were apostles, and they had received that status because of their work with Jesus. So sharing that sense of call I was guided by my pastor, my home church, people in my home church. In college, I was guided towards seminary. And in seminary, I went to fulfill that calling in a sense and to learn more of how we make the apostles today, how we make disciples today. And what I learned was that it was a highly academic venture something that resonated with me and that there was a lot of information that was to be learned a lot of knowledge that was to be imparted and also alongside of that the seminary was there to teach me to be a professional so that I didn't didn't look or act awkward or stupid when I was out in public because I would be invited, as I have been, to give invocations and prayers at city council meetings and at state capitals. And so the seminary had an investment to make sure that they were training their seminarians to be professional pastors. And there are many good things about that. But one thing that it really wasn't about was who I was or how I lived my life. It was really about what I knew. As a matter of fact, you could get by without having to address your personal life. When I was in seminary, uh, there was a, must have been my second year, and this was second-hand information, so this could be gossip. And if it is, I confess right now, okay? And so what I heard was that there was a senior who was preparing for graduation. This was probably in April or May. And that apparently he had been living with his girlfriend all through seminary. And the seminary knew about it, but it wasn't until that particular morning that the president of the seminary went and and, uh, knocked on his door at 7 in the morning and told him to either put a ring on that girl's finger or that he wasn't going to get a assigned to a district where he could receive a call. So we are called to be disciples. We are called to make disciples. And sometimes we have maybe clouded the picture a little bit. Let me go back to verses 19 and uh, the first part of verse 20. Therefore, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them, these new disciples, to obey all the commands that I have given you. Go make disciples, teaching them. That is the primary purpose of the church, according to Jesus. Making disciples who will make disciples. So our survival really depends upon whether we make disciples. If your job is to produce automobiles and to sell them, um, if you stop producing automobiles, you're not going to have a very successful business because people will come to your store to purchase a new automobile, but you won't have any because you haven't produced any. The primary purpose of the church is to make disciples who will make disciples. The thing that caught my attention first in this reading is when they saw Jesus, because they hadn't seen Jesus. This is after the, the resurrection has occurred. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus have seen Jesus, but many of the others have not yet seen Jesus. But he had told them to go to Galilee and that he would meet them at this mountain. So when they go to Galilee, they go up to the mountain, and they see Jesus. And when they see Jesus, they worship him. The Greek word that's used here, because there's three different words for worship in Greek, this particular word is used most of the time, 59 times in uh, Luke alone. And um, this word means uh, worship, like bow down or kneel. To lie prostrate, to um, to fall down. Um, this is the word, uh, the meaning of this word, uh, proskune, uh, for worship in in the Greek, and this is an image of coming to God as a servant, coming to Jesus Christ as a servant. And when we worship Jesus, we submit to Jesus. That's what it means to lie down or to bow down. Um, and physically, it is an action. There is movement here. So the worship isn't just something going on in my head, but it's an actual part of my physical nature. I am going from above to below. I'm going from I'm at the top to I'm now below Jesus. I am below God. When I was at a previous call, one of the pastors wanted to purchase kneelers. He had actually contacted a couple of members of the church who had agreed to uh, to purchase the kneelers so that we could actually kneel during the worship service, like during the confession. Uh, but there was a big fight in the church. Half of the church didn't want the kneelers. Half of them, was they were okay with it. Uh, we ended up not, not getting the kneelers. And so one of the things that I thought about was you know, we have this aversion to physical um, actions in worship. And um, yet that was a very real part in the early church, was how they physically submitted to God, how they physically uh, kneeled before Jesus. And whether we have kneelers or not may not make a huge difference, but how we worship in terms of What is involved? Is it just the head? Or is it the head and the body? That may be a more important question. So is there a correct place to worship? Let me tell you that the Bible tells us that there is. There is a correct place to worship. Is it in the temple? Or is it in your homes? What is the correct place? Well, Acts 17, verses 24 and 25 give us a clue here. Paul is addressing the Athenians at the Areopagus. This is is a theater that they invited visiting speakers to speak at um, on philosophical issues. And so Paul has been invited to speak about this Jesus of Nazareth. In uh, Acts 17 verses 24 and 25, this is what Paul says. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in a man-made temple. And human hands can't serve his needs. For he has no needs. He himself gives life, gives breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. So what Paul is saying is that the Lord God is the one who is worshipped not with things that we make like temples but rather he is worshipped in a different way so you might be thinking well is it house worship then maybe that's the more true form of worship if you go to John chapter 4 in uh, the story of the woman at the, the Samaritan woman at the well, as this conversation between this woman and Jesus continues, she asks him the question where is she to worship? Because she is a Samaritan, they have a separate site to worship. Jesus worships at the temple in Jerusalem. And what Jesus tells her is that the time is coming when you will no longer worship at your temple or at the temple in Jerusalem. But you will worship in spirit and in truth. The prophets talk about this repeatedly, that when you make your sacrifice, because worship um, has this connotation of a sacrifice, when you make your sacrifice, the, the prophets reminded us that it's not the importance of the sacrifice of the animal. It's the sacrifice of your heart and so the true place of worship is where god connects to our hearts and so the only place that we need to find for a place of worship is a place where people are willing to gather together the place where people will assemble around god's word and sacraments whether it's in the temple whether it's in the house whether it's on the patio whether it's in your backyard that doesn't make any difference What makes a difference is how we worship here and with others. So yes, there is a correct place to worship, a correct way to worship, and that that way is connected to our hearts. Then Jesus tells us this next thing. He tells us to make disciples and to teach them. So, I don't know about you, but that has been a part of my call, in a sense, is to make disciples, and I believe that's a part of everyone's call, to make disciples, so that that would be a part of your call, as a Christian, to make disciples. But what is a disciple? A disciple literally is a student, uh, like a pupil or a learner, Uh, yet being a student is different today than being a student in the time of Jesus. A New Testament disciple imitated both the life, how the the teacher lived, and the teaching, what the teacher taught. It was a deliberate apprenticeship that made the fully formed disciple a living copy of the master so that you didn't just know what your teacher knew, but that you lived your life like your teacher lived his or her life. So how will you make disciples? Have you considered that before? I mean, it is difficult work, believe me. The the apostle Saul, I don't know if you remember his story, but he persecuted the early church especially in Jerusalem, was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians there. And it was on the way to Damascus that Jesus appeared to him. And he was blinded, and he lost vision for three days. At that point, Saul becomes a believer in Jesus. And he feels that God has called him also to be an apostle. So he includes himself as an apostle, as one of Christ's disciples. And so Saul then studies with Ananias after his conversion. He spends what we think is about three years in Antioch with these Christians. And then he moves on back up to Tarsus And uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 years, um, some scholars place it at about 13 years. After 13 years, um, according to tradition, Saul is found in a cave by himself in Tarsus. He has completely abandoned what he has learned about Jesus. He has attempted to be a teacher, he has attempted to, to apprentice others, and it doesn't work. They just don't stay with him. Thirteen years after Saul's conversion, and he still doesn't have a disciple. I tell you, when I heard that, that made me feel like there was hope even for this old guy. You see, it doesn't matter how old you are or how long it takes, because it will always be a part of God's plan. And so to make disciples is really difficult work, and you can't expect that everyone is going to just be able to jump and to do this work. And when we think about doing this work, we have to remember that Paul didn't make his first disciple until he went to the island of Cyprus. There's a story about this in Acts 13. Um, Let me bring you to that here if you have your Bibles open. Acts 13, verses 4 and 5. Um, So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They'd been called to do a missionary journey together. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia, And then they sailed for the island of Cyprus, there in the town of Salamis. They went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit as he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Then he said, You, son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud and enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has had his hand of punishment upon you, and you'll be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished At the teaching about the Lord. This was Paul's first disciple. (laughs) This was his first convert. This was the first time he had any success as a Christian. Maybe 15 years after that blinding light met him on the road to Damascus. And so, what we are reminded here is that it takes time to make disciples. So as we shift and focus on discipleship as a church, we can't expect this thing to happen overnight. Not only that, but one of the ways that it really changed is you can see Paul is very direct, which may have been an issue for some of his disciple-making. But what you also see um, earlier in chapter 12 is the role of Barnabas. Barnabas was a Christian who had um, known Paul, and he came back to when he probably heard about Paul, that he was uh, depressed, living in Tarsus, um, on his own, no longer actively working in the church. And so Barnabas probably heard that word and went to see Paul of Tarsus. And when he was there, he encouraged him, because that's what Barnabas did. He was Barnabas, and his his name means son of encouragement. So, whereas some of you may be thinking, I could never be a disciple maker, I wouldn't know how to do that, I wouldn't know what to do, don't underestimate yourself. But at the same time, don't forget that we also need encouragers, we also need people to encourage those who are making disciples. The third thing that we learn from Jesus here is to simply go. Go to all the nations. Go and make disciples. In that same chapter later on in verses 44 through 49, we have an interesting uh, look here because Paul continues to go to the Jews first. Wherever he goes to a new town, he goes to the Jews first. He always shows up to the synagogue and he preaches to them. But he has been rejected time and time and time again. And so at this point, it says in verse 44 of chapter 13, the following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. This is the Gentiles now. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you, but since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. Again, very direct here. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. So the Lord's message spread throughout the region. This is where Paul's focus begins to shift. His message now is being addressed more to the Gentiles. He doesn't stop preaching to the synagogues, but that is no longer the first place that he preaches to. His primary mission, he sees at this point, is his mission to the Gentiles. And interestingly, this is the point in chapter 13 where his name changes from Saul to Paul. Many of you perhaps thought it changed when he had that um, revelation on the road to Damascus. But he is considered Saul all the way up to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is where we begin to see the transition from Paul to Saul, the same point when he begins to transition his primary mission away from the Jews and towards the Gentiles. You see, Saul was his Jewish name, and Paul is his Roman or his Gentile name. So, where will you go to make disciples? Let's begin with some basics. You have a home, and you can start a church in your home with your family, with your household. I would say the very first place to start would be parents, teach your children. Grandparents, teach your grandchildren. That's one of Patty's and my goals. I've got this little new devotional, Little Visits with God that I introduced to you last week. You know, my goal is to tape one of those each week and send it to our grandkids. So let's just begin with the basics and not think about how we can make this into a great big movement at this point. Remember, it's not about information that you want to impart, but it's about who you are and what God has meant to you in your life, how God has changed and transformed you, how God has taken you from a place of hope to a position of faith and belief it's about how you live your life with integrity and compassion and love for all of God's people god doesn't mean that you have to go across the world to make disciples you can begin right at home with your family with your friends with your neighbors Worship, discipleship, and mission. This is how we make disciples. And this, according to Jesus, is the purpose of the church. Amen.